uh, back in the early days of the Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford had a problem with one of his generators. They had these massive generators, electrical generators, and one day the generators ground to a halt and his repairman couldn't find the answer to the problem. So uh, Ford called a, a man named Charles Steinmetz. He was an electrical genius. Uh, this is the early 1900s. Uh, just for reference, Steinmetz was friends with Albert Einstein and Nikola Tesla and uh, Thomas Edison. He was in that kind of league. And uh, he was one of the great mathematical and scientific minds of the time. And uh, anyway, Steinmetz turned up. He tinkered with the, the generators for a couple of hours. And then uh, he, th he threw a switch and the generators came back on. Ford was delighted until he received the bill. It was $10,000. And uh, he was uh, tight-fisted, apparently. Um, I think that was a lot of money back then. I think a, a, a new car ran about $250. Um, he asked for an itemized bill, and so Steinmetz replied, for tinkering with the generators, $10, for knowing where to tinker, 9990 <laughs> Henry Ford paid the bill. Uh, well, today in the church, we are thinking about wisdom and how to be wise. And uh, sometimes the wisest thing you can do is to go to the person who knows how to tinker. Um, to go to the expert. Uh, so that's where we're going to go this morning as we open the New Testament. Uh, we're going to see what the New Testament says about wisdom that can be found in Jesus. Uh, so why don't we pray that God will make us wise now as we open the Bible. Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom as we open your word today. Help us to know how to live wisely in the world as we go about our everyday lives and as we seek to follow Jesus. Grant us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, well, last week we started a little series about and what the Old Testament has to say about wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the Old Testament taught us that even to begin to be wise in this world, we need to acknowledge that there is a God, and we need to know Him. And it's by knowing God and knowing who he is that we begin to know about ourselves and our purpose in the world. If knowledge, if wisdom is all about learning how to live wisely or to live well in the world, we need to know God first. Um, but the Bible doesn't stop with the Old Testament. Uh, and what we know about God doesn't stop with the Old Testament either. And the New Testament continues the story that the Old Testament began. And it takes all the promises and all of the prophecies and all of the purposes of God and it focuses them in on Jesus Christ. And so my first big idea today, and you can see it beside the, the Bible passage there in your notes, is that New Testament wisdom is centered on Christ. You need to know Jesus if you want to be wise. Uh, if wisdom comes from knowing God, like it said in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, then we need to know Jesus. And the Christmas season reminded us that Jesus is God's own son. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God born in human flesh. Um, Jesus himself told us that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. If you want to know God, you look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus reveals God to us. And that means that Jesus reveals God's wisdom to us. Uh, look at what Paul says in 1, th 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. And this is on your handout. Right at the end of verse 24, it says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
That's 1 Corinthians 1.24. And we'll, we'll unpack that a bit more. Paul says it again in verse 30. He says, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. If you want the key to godly wisdom, then we need to look at Jesus. Um, now, I think plenty of people would see Jesus as a wise teacher, perhaps even one of the greatest uh, teachers or philosophers of all time. And Jesus did teach all kinds of practical wisdom. But is that the heart of who Jesus is? Uh, just a good teacher? Uh, if so, then what distinguishes him from a thousand other philosophers and the voices of wisdom that we've heard across the centuries? Well, to answer that question, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians again because it shows that Jesus' wisdom and worldly wisdom, they don't actually have the same outcome. Jesus' wisdom, it upturns everything that this world defines as wise. But in doing so, he reveals the most important wisdom that we could attain. And that wisdom is captured in the message of the cross. Uh, so the second big idea, New Testament wisdom, is captured in the cross. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the beginning of our passage. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, those, uh, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, what is the message of the cross? Uh, this is the reason, by the way, that we have a great big cross behind us. We want you to remember the message of the cross. Well, see, the cross is the heart of God's plan to bring righteousness and holiness and redemption to the world. We just read a moment ago that Jesus was God's holiness, his righteousness, and his redemption. And so this story of the Bible, in a nutshell, is that God lovingly created the world and everything in it, and in his loving wisdom, he created everything such that it was good. And so that as humans... Every element was designed so that we would flourish and live a, a life of blessing within God's world and have perfect harmony with the Creator. But sin shattered that perfection. Adam and Eve thought that God was holding back a blessing from them, and so they ate from a tree that God had forbidden them to eat from. And it's this powerful metaphor, isn't it, of the way that we all seek to exert our own wisdom on the world. I think I know what's best for my life. I'll do what I feel like doing. We define what we think life should be like and we shape the world around us to get what we want with little thought for the consequences. Well, Adam and Eve's sin had larger consequences. It damaged the relationship between Adam and Eve and, and we've seen that play out in every human relationship. There's no perfect relationships. We always hurt one another. But more significantly, it damaged the relationship between humanity and God. It set humanity up as suspicious of God's motives. Did God really say that's the best way to live? Surely my way would be better. It made us wary of listening to the voice of God's wisdom in our life. See, God's wisdom tells us the best way to live, the way that he created us to live. But if you've ever had a toddler, you know how you can tell toddlers to do the right thing? It's good for them, and they don't want to do it. It's just what they're like. Um, toddlers are cute even when they're misbehaving. Uh, but sin is not cute. Uh, sin is not insignificant. It's much more like the destructive behaviors that break up relationships permanently. And sin has fundamentally broken our relationship with God. And that broken relationship with the Creator brings spiritual death as we cut ourselves off from Him in this lifetime and that lasts into all of eternity. Sin matters because sin separates us from God's blessing now and forever. 
Uh, and I know this is an unpopular topic to talk about, um, but if we see wisdom, this topic can't be avoided. It can't be downplayed as unpalatable as it is. Because understanding our own sinfulness actually helps us take the first step towards gaining wisdom. Because uh, if we understand the problem, then we begin to see why the cross was necessary. Um, God doesn't want us to remain in sin. He doesn't want us to remain separated from him. And he doesn't want us to face the eternal consequences of our sin. And so God sends Jesus to stand in our place, or to hang in our place, in fact. And on the cross, Jesus received the damnation that we should have received. Jesus received God's justified anger at human sin. And God poured out that anger and that wrath on Jesus until his wrath, his wrath, we say wrath in Australia, his wrath was satisfied and Jesus was dead. And so Jesus bore the penalty for our sin in his body, the righteous for the unrighteous to make you right with God once more. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is his righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Or our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, on the cross, Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. Um, he transfers it to us. It's like a loan satisfaction letter that says there's no more debt to be paid. Jesus declares righteous through his death on the cross. Uh, his holiness is credited to us. He makes us holy in God's sight. And he brings redemption where before there was only condemnation. On the cross, Jesus gives us a second chance with God. And this is the incredible message of the cross, and this is the incredible message of Christianity. It's God's love poured out on the cross. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. See, the cross, it displays God's love. It displays God's mercy. It displays God's forgiveness. And it captures the essence of God's wisdom. Um, is the cross where you find your wisdom for life? Because to many people, the cross doesn't look like wisdom at all. It, it looks like foolishness. And this is the third big idea, the foolishness of the cross. Uh, come back to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 with me. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And many people look at the cross and all that they see is foolishness. They see weakness, they see defeat, they see shame. And they look on Christians the same way. You are pitiful, you are foolish, you are weak, you are deluded. And I don't think that's anything new. Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth only 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can see already that the wise of the world looked down upon Christianity as foolish. They looked down upon Christians as foolish. In Corinth, there were two main streams of wisdom that came up against Christianity. There were the Jews and the Greeks. Um, of course, Christianity grew out of Judaism. Uh, Jesus himself was a Jew, and the 12 apostles were Jewish, and, and so many were, of the first followers were as well. But where Christianity and Judaism have separated or remained separate for 2,000 years is over the identity of Jesus. Um, Jews don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And they don't recognize him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come today. Uh, back in their time and, and today, they wanted proof of who the Messiah was. They wanted to see proof that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And their reason for rejecting Jesus was there's not enough evidence. That's what they said. Um, and we hear that today still, don't we? 
There's not enough evidence of Jesus. That's one of the criticisms of Christians. Um, the Greek objection to Jesus, the Greek objection to Christianity, it was more philosophical. Of course, the Greeks pr uh, prided themselves on their tradition of the great philosophers. There was Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and all the rest. Uh, the Greeks loved to argue, and perhaps the argument was more important to them than the outcome, and arguing well. It's probably unfair, cheap shot. But we all know people who are like that too, don't they? With eloquent arguments, they make the Christian message sound weak and powerless, and because of that, it's a reason to reject it. And I think that's the point of Paul's argument here. The message of the cross, it actually does look like foolishness in the eyes of the world. But God has made it so deliberately. So follow the logic uh, with me from verse 19. It says, for it is written, this is what God says. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. As wise as the philosophers of this world are, their wisdom cannot lead us to salvation. And we can't reason our way to salvation. We can't think our way to salvation. We can't come up with a mathematical equation that leads to salvation. There's no quantum theory or mechanic theory or economical theory that leads us into the presence of God. All of those philosophies, they're good and they're part of how we interact with this world. But they can't overcome the fundamental issue of humans, which is sinfulness. And so instead, God provides an alternative wisdom, one that looks weak and it sounds foolish as we speak it into a world that says, no, no, I'm doing well without God. What it says in verse 21 is that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now read on with me at verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We preach Christ crucified. If you want to know Christian wisdom, it will always be rooted in the preaching of Jesus and the cross. Whenever we seek to apply God's wisdom to our lives, it must always be shaped by Jesus and the cross. Our wisdom, God's wisdom, is shown supremely in Christ crucified, and that's why we preach Jesus Christ crucified here. Even when that message is touted as foolishness by our friends and our neighbors, because as verse 21 says, God is pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. People are saved when we preach this message. Now the foolishness of the cross also means that the church itself will seem foolish in the eyes of the world. I thought about this. Here it is. It's not New Year's Day, but it's the day afterwards, and we woke up and we came to church. Most people will be thinking about brunch, but here we are. Uh, I read an article in the New York Times this week. Uh, it was entitled, Is the West Becoming Pagan Again? Uh, it was a reminder of the declining attendance in churches across uh, Western nations and the way that uh, Christian values no longer shape societal norms, they no longer shape government policies in the way that they once did. 
It also said that the millennial generation, basically most adult Americans under 40, um, is the first generation in which Christianity will be a minority. First generation, millennials, where Christians, Christians are in the minority. And we know it all too well. Where we live in the Bay Area, uh, we have the, it's the most, it's the least religious part of the entire United States. Um, we have the highest number of people who are unchurched. That means they've never been to church before. And the most people who are de-churched. They used to go to church, but they've stopped for some reason. Perhaps it's because the church is not impressive. It's foolishness, right? This message, the people here, the buildings. Again, Paul says that is all part of God's plan to overturn the wisdom of the world. In the perceived weakness of the church and in the foolishness of the cross, God actually displays his wisdom and his power. Uh, Paul writes this about the church in Corinth in verse 26. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Other Corinthians, they prided themselves on their social hierarchy, of wealth and position and influence and eloquence. Well, they were all valued by Corinthian society and they pegged somebody's societal value. The Corinthian church, it seemed, was not impressed by uh, the Christian church. Uh, they weren't impressive by Corinthian standards. In this city that was full of elaborate temples to the gods, well, the first Christians met in people's homes and outdoors. And those first converts, it seems not many of them occupied the upper strata of Corinthian society. And actually, when you think about the early church, it brought together all kinds of people with no societal status. Uh, women who had no or few rights in their society, it brought slaves who were considered as property and not people. And it brought all kinds of people who wouldn't mix socially under normal circumstances. And in the gospel, God takes all of these lowly people and he makes them his children. We sang it before, didn't we? I'm a child of God. He makes them his children. He makes them his people. He makes them his treasured possession. He tells the worthless things of this world that they have worth in his eyes. They are worth the death of his son. And he lifts them out of the dust and he honors them. And that is how God shows his wisdom. He says that the trappings of worldly success, they actually mean nothing in the kingdom of God. God is the one who is supremely impressive. And I think there's a particular lesson for us to learn from this little passage. Um, as I read from verse 26, I realize we're different from the Corinthian church because many of us here are wise by earthly standards. And many of us are influential and many are of noble birth. God has assembled some very impressive people in this room. And it's quite humbling to stand here as your pastor. And every part of me wants to imagine that God is going to do impressive things in this building and in this valley uh, amongst us and, and I pray that he really will. But whatever impressive things we achieve together, we need to make sure that we stay rooted in the wisdom of the cross. That is, we need to keep preaching Christ crucified we need to keep focused on the message that brings salvation to this world, no matter how foolish it might seem to everybody who hears it. We need to keep rejecting the wisdom of this world that honors some people over others and 
We need to follow the wisdom of Jesus who associated with people from every station of society. He honoured the weak, he healed the sick, he loved the outcast. He rejected the kind of leadership that lords it over others and he forgave those who made a mess of their lives. He made a family out of every person who followed him. That's what the church should look like. And if it doesn't, we've made a mistake in our wisdom. We've followed the wrong wisdom. Well, there's so much to say about wisdom uh, from the Bible, but this is a great place to start, isn't it? How do we bring the wisdom of the cross to the front and center of everything we do as a church? How do we pursue cross-shaped lives as individuals? And how do we follow the path that Jesus has set out for us? Why don't we pray about that now? Our Father, your wisdom confounds the best wisdom that we can come up with. Uh, For you, what is powerful and what is wise is the cross, the death of your son who died in humble circumstances to bring us life. We probably wouldn't have picked it that way, Lord, but your wisdom is so much wiser than ours. And so we pray, Father, that in all things that we do, we follow the wisdom of the cross so that Jesus will be glorified and so that your family will grow here in the Napa Valley and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.